Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, for those who are visiting, I know several are in town for graduations. Welcome. We're happy to have you with us. My name is Matt, if I haven't met you. Um, we're going to get right into this. Once again, a section that we were planning to cover in a single week is actually going to end up taking us three weeks. So this is kind of becoming a pattern, I guess. We started this last week, though, at the end of James chapter 3. Today we're going to cover the first three verses of James 4, and then we're going to continue this thought next week. But some of the material we covered today is going to seem rather repetitive when compared to the material we covered last week. But just hang in there. I think this is going to be good for us to revisit some of these themes. You know, my maternal grandfather passed away several years ago, and I have really fond memories of sitting on the porch of his small A-frame house that he built with his own hands and taking turns reciting Robert service poems to one another and talking about the meaning of life, which are some pretty big conversations. And we had different takes on those questions about the purpose of life. I mean, I was obviously still quite young. My grandfather was nearing the end of his life. My thoughts on those questions were inseparable from my faith. His thoughts on those questions revealed that he had serious doubts about the faith I held. But I respected his perspective. He respected mine. We had great conversations. But in those conversations, without fail, he would always bring his trusty companion and his favorite thinker, the 17th century Dutch philosopher Spinoza. He would bring him into the conversation. Now, I haven't studied Spinoza. Uh, I've really only read the stuff that he wrote that my grandfather passed along to me. But he did say something that I want to read through this morning as I think it sets the stage for where we're heading in the book of James this morning. He said this, I've often wondered that persons who make a boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues they claim, is the readiest criterion of their faith. It's tough. To read. And I, I bring this up today not to join the, the chorus of folks condemning Christians for our hypocrisy, even though there is hypocrisy in us all that is worthy of criticism. But I bring this up today rather because these are issues that plagued the church since its inception. These are issues that continue to plague us today. I think this is one of the reasons that the past couple of weeks has been rather heavy, if you've been with us. It's been difficult to hear some of the things James is talking about because he's dealing with some of the temptations that we easily succumb to and that are very easy to make excuses for. I don't know if you've felt the sting of any of this. Maybe that's just me, but I do think this is really important stuff, and this is why we're spending several weeks dealing with it. So the passage that we begin reading today is a continuation of the section we started last week where James was talking about wisdom that is pure, wisdom that comes from above versus wisdom that is false. And he makes the argument that true wisdom, wisdom from above, is meek, it is gentle, it is open to reason, etc. He lists all of these characteristics. So we're going to continue that thought today as we pick it up in James chapter 4, verse 1, where he asks this question. 
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? We're going to come back to that question in just a moment, but before we do, as many of you know, the baseball season has returned, which I know sounds completely unrelated to where we're going in James, but just stick with me. We are just a few weeks into a long, laborious baseball season, laborious especially for those who play fantasy baseball. But for me, I don't play fantasy baseball. For me, the return of baseball season has exposed once again in me one of the basest parts of my soul. A part that is worthy of criticism as we read the words in James, but it is a part of me that is revealed in my fascination with, in the unrelenting draw I feel towards videos of baseball brawls. Do you know what I'm talking about? This is actually quite surprising for me because I don't like watching fights in general. I've never been into a sport like boxing or, heaven forbid, MMA, unless you count something like my childhood interest in WWF, but we all know that that's very different. I've never liked watching fights, but when the benches in a baseball game clear and pitchers, pitchers are seen running from the, the bullpen, in the outfield all the way to the pitcher's mound, it just draws me right in. I don't know, maybe it's the fact that a very low-contact sport becomes contentious in an instant. I don't know, for whatever reason, it's fascinating to me. So back to James. Uh, apparently, for some of these congregations, the, the benches are clearing, so to speak. The pitchers are running from the bullpen to the pitcher's mound, and James has to address these issues. Because the members of the community that he's writing to are not exemplifying a wisdom that comes from above that is meek and pure, peaceable, gentle, yielding, all of those things. No, they're constantly quarreling and fighting with one another. Maybe you've had relationships like that where there's just constant strife in the relationship. There's always one party that's upset with the other party. Tempers are always flaring. What, what I find interesting about James' treatment of this subject is that he doesn't seem to care who's right or who's wrong in these fights. That's not the point. He's not interested in doling out blame. He's not interested in excusing the other party. No, the point is that as followers of Jesus, we are compelled to live meekly, gently, and peaceably. And when we don't, we fall short of Christ's call. And James doesn't just say, hey, cut it out. Grow up. You need to stop fighting with one another. He does imply all of those things, but he also says, look, we need to take some time and try to get at the root of the problem here. Because the fighting, while that's the visible problem, it is actually just a symptom of the real sickness that lies beneath the surface. So the question for James is, what is really causing this strife? What is beneath the surface? What is the root cause of these fights? We continue in verse 1. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and you do not have, so you murder. Sounds intense. You, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So the question posed is, why are there fights and quarrels among you? Well, here's the first thing we must all remember. It's not them, James says, it's me. It's the classic line to end a romantic relationship, right? I don't know if this is where George Costanza got it. He said he invented it, but it seems as though James did. It's not you, it's me. This is it. James says, it's you. Your passions are warring within you. You desire, you covet, and so you fight and murder. You fight and murder. Let's just wait a second, James. I think you're getting carried away. Let's not resort to some of these rhetorical extremes. You desire and you do not have, so you covet and you murder? Look, I, I had my fair share of fights with my brother, even physical altercations when my, with my brothers when we were growing up, but none of us are going to take it to an extreme like that. I mean, our fights were more of the love-filled variety, right? At least that's what I would tell my mom when she started worrying about how frequently we were fighting. In our house, the, the worst part of the fights that I had with my brother was the path towards reconciliation that my mom laid out for us. If we were caught fighting, we were instructed that we were to hug one another. Without time to cool down, no time to decompress, it's just, oh, you're fighting? We'll go ahead and hug. <laughs> Needless to say, that didn't really do the trick. It filled me with more rage. But James says you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, this is extreme, but... This is the extreme if those passions within us are allowed to go unchecked. And while it si sounds extreme and it seems absurd that he would bring murder into this conversation, it's actually a tale as old as time that we find expressed even throughout our scriptures. This is a part of the, the story of the first family that we are introduced to in the book of Genesis where Cain and Abel, these two brothers... Both of them offer a sacrifice to God, and Cain becomes envious of his brother Abel and covets God's approval, and so he murders his brother. We can continue. If we progress, we see it with Joseph and his brothers who make these plans that are ultimately they're unable to carry out, but it is their jealousy, it is their covetousness that leads them to plot to kill their brother. Or we could think of David, who murders to cover up the effects of his covetous heart by, in effect, killing the husband of the woman he had had an affair with. And that's not an exhaustive list. You see this all over the place, time and time again. This is what happens if those passions are allowed to grow and if they remain unchecked. Time after time, when covetousness is allowed to fester, the results are tragic. Murder, of course, being the extreme, which hopefully is not what we resort to, but we don't have to resort to something as heinous as that for covetousness to grip our hearts and to be expressed in concrete actions that destroy other people and in the end destroy us. 
So James is asking a question, what is causing these fights? And I think it's important for us to slow down here and consider the fact that, and I think most of us would probably agree that there are things in this life worth fighting for. There are battles, so to speak, worth engaging in, and I'm not referring specifically to military battles, although maybe that's an interesting discussion for us to have at some point. But that's not the main concern of this passion. I'm not talking about employing violence when I talk about battling or fighting for something. That's not what we're considering. But there are things in this life that are worth struggling for. And I think we all have to do the hard work of figuring out what those things are. Figuring out what is worth struggling for in this life, and then maybe even the harder task of figuring out how to go about that as individuals have, who have, called to have been called to live a life that is marked by meekness and humility and peacemaking. Those are not easy questions to answer. I think a list of things worth fighting for would certainly include things like fighting for human dignity, fighting for the sacredness of life, or fighting against exploitation wherever we find it and in whatever way we can. But I think we also have to consider if maybe the list of things worth fighting for is much shorter than we often assume. And maybe there are things on that list that we wouldn't have put on that list. So apparently for James, some in the congregations he's writing to have been quarreling and fighting over what he deems to be inappropriate and unimportant things. Fighting over meaningless stuff. He says you fight and you quarrel because you don't have what you want. You think you're entitled to those things. And if you don't get that under control, destruction is just around the corner. So the whole attitude that he's pushing back against is the, the idea that I can't rejoice because I'm dissatisfied and I'm offended. I'm dissatisfied with my lot in life. I'm offended that God has blessed you and his grace has been expressed in your life in these ways and it hasn't been expressed in my life like that. I'm offended that you seem to have the perfect life and I'm a wreck that that person of all people would experience some financial freedom, and I am constantly struggling to keep my head above water. I want what you have, and I can't get it. And because I don't have what you possess, I can't be happy for you, and I can't be happy for God's grace in your life, and I can't be content with God's grace in my life. And I think these two things, dissatisfaction and offense are two of the great plagues of our day. And ultimately, I think when those attitudes creep into our hearts, it really reveals that we don't truly trust God. We don't trust God to be fair with us. And if we don't trust God, we are never going to be able to love our neighbor. So whether we're talking about the wars of nations, wars that without fail catch innocent civilians in the crosshairs of violence, or whether we are speaking about individual and personal conflicts, maybe even something as mild as a verbal spat between friends. The source of conflict across the board is the same. James says it's covetousness. We want what we don't have, and if we can't get what we want, well, then peace is off the table. This is where James says those fights begin. It is our lack. It is our unmet desires. 
And those unmet desires feel unbearable, especially if we look at somebody else that has what we want. It's unbearable. And if we don't deal with the fact that it's unbearable, it's going to lead to some sense of pain in our lives, and that pain is going to be turned into anger for the person who has that. I think Brene Brown aptly summed up a situation like this when she said, we've lost our capacity for pain and discomfort. We've transformed that pain into hatred and blame. And then she went on to say, it's like it's so much easier for people to cause pain than it is for them to feel their own pain. So I'm hurting. I have needs or unfulfilled desires, and you have it so easy. And in my mind, I can twist this narrative, whether this logical or not, I can twist it and somehow begin blaming you and I can convince myself that you are responsible for my lack or my failure just because you have the thing I want. If we want peace in our own hearts, if we want peace in our relationships, we have to come to terms with the passions that are waging war inside of us that cause us to use that scapegoat mechanism as a strategy for dealing with our own pain. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 12, in the middle of that chapter, Luke's telling us these stories about Jesus teaching large crowds of people. And on one occasion, somebody speaks up and says, hey, Jesus, I I see that you're a man of great authority. Why don't you use that authority to convince my brother to divide the inheritance with me? So apparently, this individual is involved in a dispute over some property that's related to an inheritance. And Jesus responds to this request by saying, look, I'm I'm not an arbitrator in your personal affairs, but I can teach you something that will help you navigate some of those affairs. And this is it in verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus says, I'm not going to play judge. I'm not going to tell you how this particular situation should be handled, but I can tell you how to handle the more important matter, which is the condition of your heart. And this is it. Guard against covetousness. Guard against covetousness because your life is more than what you own. Continue reading in verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. So the rich man in the parable had everything he could possibly want. The land he owned produced more crops than he could manage. 
He didn't have room to store it all, and so he does what to our modern capitalistic ears sounds like the only reasonable thing to, to do. He builds larger barns to store more and more goods because enough is never enough. The, the sense is I need to accumulate more stuff, and according to that scale of accumulation, scale of taking and possessing, this man is nothing but a success. He stored up so much that all he could do was sit back and enjoy the fruits of his labor. Because all I can do is eat, drink, and be merry. But unfortunately for the man in this parable, God uses a different scale for judgment. So the scale of accumulation, which human societies typically function under, that scale of accumulation is replaced with a scale of richness towards God. And on that scale, this particular man was severely lacking. He laid up treasures for himself on this earth and plenty of them. He knew what he wanted and he went out and achieved it, but all the while he was poor in terms of what truly mattered. Perhaps this would remind you of something else Jesus said in Mark chapter 8 when he's foretelling his death and Speaking to the disciples in a, a crowd that had gathered around him, he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then in verse 36, he says this, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What good is it if you want everything you see and you get everything you want? Jesus says it's no good. That endless pursuit of earthly treasure will be the death of your soul. And what is more, it's probably going to be the death of many of your relationships because that is a path that leads you towards turning other people into nothing more than commodities that can be used for your gain. So back in James, finally picking it up in the second half of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. He says you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on yourselves. You do not have because you do not ask. Now we could take this a couple of ways. One could say, well, you, you do not have because you do not ask. You, you don't even ask your neighbors who have some of the things you need and would be willing to help you out in this time of need, but covetousness has so gripped your heart that your neighbor isn't a source of help as you're experiencing need. Your neighbor's a competitor that you're currently losing to. So you can possibly put yourself in a humiliating place of asking for help. They're not a neighbor that you can rely on in some seasons and that you can support in other seasons. I think that's one way to take it and we could gain a lot of insight from that. But most likely, James is thinking here of asking God for some of the things we need but lack. He says you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask wrongly. Now, there are a couple of ways. If James is thinking about asking God for the things we need, there are a couple of ways that we ask in the wrong manner. Or there are misguided approaches to petitions in prayer. Number one is to view prayer, to use 
God as a last resort that we turn to if we've been unable to acquire the stuff we want in our own strength. So now, well, I'm going to turn to God and I'm going to see if I can force him into a corner and use this formula to get what I want from him. This is to turn God into a vending machine where you stick the coin in and he spits out whatever you want. The second misguided approach to prayer is to focus exclusively, this is what James is arguing, to focus exclusively on ourselves rather than others. To use prayer as a way to try to get what we want and not a way to see where God has blessed us and in what ways we might extend those blessings to others. So I think I need to ask, I think we all need to ask ourselves, how often are my prayers, my prayers of petition, how often are my prayers focused on my needs rather than the needs of others? Rather than figuring out how God wants me to use his grace in my life and the blessings he's bestowed upon me to benefit my neighbor. I think ultimately one of the great temptations for us is that our prayers become selfish, and they become just another means of feeding our competitive spirit that leads to those fights and quarrels. Prayers become just another means of feeding that spirit of acquisitiveness. And how tragic would it be if prayer, something that is so central to our spiritual development, how tragic would it be if prayer becomes something that feeds an attitude in us that is so unlike Christ? So James began this section, we'll continue this next week, but he began this section by asking, why are you fighting, why are you quarreling, what's causing all of these? And we noted that there are things that are worth laboring for, things worth battling for, but not everything is worth it. And most likely, most of the things that we are fighting for are not worth it. And even when we do find something that is worth the struggle, When we engage in a struggle that we deem necessary and that we deem important, we must take care to go into those situations with an attitude that honors Christ. Because if we fight battles worth fighting, but adopt an attitude that's unlike Christ, we are no better than the sin or the injustice that we fight against. If we sacrifice Christ-likeness, at the altar of winning an important or worthwhile battle, in the end, we lose. So fights and quarrels. Always looking for somebody else to blame for the pain that I'm feeling. Constant tension in our relationships. I don't think that's what God desires for us. I don't think that that's what he has for our relationships with one another in this room, in our community, or in the world. We have been called to be peacemakers. And if there's constant strife and constant tension in our relationships, then we're, we're missing a part of what we've been called to do. You know, we conclude every one of our services, what, what do we say together? We say, we go in peace to love and serve the Lord. This is a reminder that we want to bookend every one of our gatherings, that we are to be a people 
who are involved in making peace in our relationships. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord, and we commit to work for that. And it has to be worked for because peace doesn't appear out of thin air. If we just wait and see what happens with our relationships, if we don't have any intentionality in building peace into our relationships, we are going to end up in the position that James is pushing back against, where there are constant fights, and quarrels. Peace doesn't just happen. Peace is the result of our focused efforts. It is the, fo- the, the result of our changed hearts. Would you stand this morning? I think an appropriate way for us to posture ourselves as we conclude in a time of singing and worshiping together I think an appropriate way for us to posture ourselves would be to recite the Beatitudes together. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to commit this section of the Lord's Prayer to memory, to allow this to guide you throughout your day. It is such an important part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I think this is a foundation upon which we can stand that will, in the end, help us work for peace. So we're going to respond to what the Spirit of Christ is speaking to us through the words of James this morning. We're going to sing a song together, and then we'll eat. But as we do, would you join me in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, we invite you to speak to us, to reveal attitudes in our hearts and in our minds that turn our neighbor into a competitor rather than a brother or sister.